Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. There, you'll read, learn, and make comment about her life as a 21st century wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. And now it's time for Carrie to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Great. For the next hour, my guest, retired four-star general Wesley Clark, and I will be getting up in the business of success, bravery, and leadership. You'll hear from the general tips on being successful, talk about his accomplished military life, and learn what he's up to now as the CEO of Wesley K. Clark & Associates, an international consulting firm. Through our storytelling, you will hear how we maneuvered the path of independence and leadership in pursuit of our dreams. Each week on this show, you'll hear candid conversations between me and my guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that I think you'll find interesting. Running a business or organization is like so many things. It takes persistence, perseverance, and patience. I worked part-time jobs for nine years before Arkansas Flag and Banner grew enough to support just me. It's now grown and expanded so much that to operate efficiently, we require, are you ready? A purchasing, manufacturing, graphics, shipping, technology, accounting, marketing, sales, and customer service department, plus a retail store. 25 people make their living from working at Arkansas Flag and Banner, now simply known as flagandbanner.com. My guest today needs no introduction. He is the well-known, retired, four-star general, General Wesley Clark. As a young man, Wesley's ambition showed as he used his intelligence and determination to graduate first in his class from West Point and became a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University in England. Clark served in Vietnam, where he commanded an infantry company into combat and was severely wounded. He was evacuated home on a stretcher. He would later command at the battalion brigade and division levels. His army career also included serving as director of strategic plans and policy. General Clark's last command was as NATO commander and supreme allied commander in Europe, where he led NATO forces to victory in Operation Allied Force, saving 1.5 million Albanians from ethnic cleansing. As you can imagine, his awards are many. To name a few, they are the Presidential Medal of Freedom, five Defense Distinguished Service Medals, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Honorary Knighthoods from the British and Dutch governments, and Commander of the Legion of Honor from France. Since retiring from service, General Wesley Clark has worked in the private sector as a businessman, an investment banker, commentator, author, teacher, and even answered the call in 2003 to stand as the Democratic candidate for the President of the United States. The next year in 2004, General Clark founded Wesley K. Clark & Associates, an international consulting firm where he uses his expertise, worldwide relationships, excellent reputation, and experience in the field of energy, alternative energy, corporate security, national security, logistics, aerospace, defense, and investment banking. It is an honor to welcome to the table the brave, 
the intelligent and honorable, retired but never resting, four-star general Wesley Clark. Nice to be here. You have such a big bio, I could have written more, even though that was a lot. I, I was running out of breath. It Thanks was for so not bad. doing any more. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for coming on. We've been trying to get together for a while, but you're always globetrotting, and it is a real honor for you to come on and share your Thank wisdom. You. From reading your bio, that begins at graduating first in your class from West Point. I gleaned that you always wanted to have a military life. Is that true? Well, I guess so. I... I uh I don't know exactly where it comes from, but um, I, my, my father, um, who died when I was not quite four, um, had been in the Navy for a year in World War I. I had a picture of him as a Navy ensign, and um, he was from a, a Jewish family in Chicago. And he was stationed in New York City, and um, the family put him up in the Waldorf Astoria for a few months while uh, they were waiting for the war to end. So I never really got the story of his military service, but when I was growing up, I always saw his picture. My stepfather, Victor Clark, uh, took me out hunting and fishing from the time I was a little kid. Um, I remember when I was seven years old, that was the first time I fired the forty-five caliber pistol that, that my stepfather's brother had, had used in World War I. And uh, so uh, all, the, all my friends' parents had, they were veterans. My uncle Miles was a veteran of the Marine Corps at Okinawa. It was just a natural thing for people my age. And of course, when I was growing up, there was a draft. So if uh, you didn't go to college, you were likely, if you're from Arkansas, you're likely to be inducted. And if you went to the University of Arkansas, if you were a man, you were going to be in ROTC for two years because all land-grant institutions had mandatory two-year ROTC. I kind of wish they still did that. I think there was something really important about feeling that you had an obligation to your country. I wish we could restore that today. I don't know how to do it exactly. Um, when I was running for office, um, some people said, you've got to come out in favor of the reinstitution of the draft. But the truth is the Army doesn't need to draft everybody who turns 18. And we wouldn't know what to do with them if we had that many people, and we couldn't afford it, and we wouldn't, it just wouldn't be the right thing. But if we could get some form of uh, national service where every young person understands they have, to, they have to give up their private room, their ability to party until 3 a.m., their iPhones on demand and so forth, and really uh, join in a community effort to help the country, help their community, help their state. It could be in the national forests. It could be in hospitals. It could be abroad. Um, it could be in the armed forces. But I think the country would be well served if we could do this. And do it right out of high school, kind of between high school and college, right there where you're young and you don't have family yet, and and kind of learn responsibility and citizenship because there's too many um, children that are growing up today that don't really have good role models. I think it's important to do it when you're young and you can learn and you've still got a lot of, um, of opportunities and choices in your life. I think as you get older in life, the range of freedom for choice, it, it just diminishes. You, you can't do as many things when you're in your 30s as you could in your 20s. You can't in your 50s as when you were in your 40s. But you can in your 60s because I can do a lot more now. It, it depends on the person, Carrie. And, uh, I mean, people, you know, people, uh, they draw their own 
boxes around themselves, and they limit themselves in ways they probably don't have to be. And yet, in this society, uh, there are role models, there are expectations of what people can do. And, and in business, uh, there's typically been payment for longevity. Uh, businesses are concerned about the costs of health insurance for employees. There's a lot of factors in business that work against uh, against hiring older employees. I've talked to a lot of people who say, well, you know, I was in, in my company, they just, I was like 45, 48 years old, and they said, well, we're hiring somebody, uh, you know, five years younger than you is going to be your boss, and uh, you need to think about, you know, what you're going to be doing in the future in this country. So you see these, you, you see these uh, walls encroaching on people, and national service is a really important concept. I wish we could get it out there. And, uh, and make it so that people of different communities, different ethnic groups, different faiths, different economic strata meet each other exactly. and respect each other. One of the great things about the Army during the age of the draft is that we got a lot of high school graduates, we got a lot of college graduates, and we got a lot of non-graduates, kids who could hardly read in, in the Army. And they all had to mix together. And these were people who would never have known each other. They would never have known about each other before. But it turns out that when you're bonded together in an organization with a common purpose and you pull together in teamwork, you cross those boundaries of economic status and, and education. And people, uh, mostly are, they're mostly the same. And if you give them a purpose to work together, they can do so. And, and you're not talking about the draft. You're talking about working together on civilian projects. I think it starts with a purpose. It doesn't have to be a military purpose. In fact, maybe it's better if it isn't. Right. But it has to be a common purpose that brings an organization together, and it has to involve some degree of personal sacrifice. I was on CNN a few years ago, and one of the young women who's a producer said, oh, you had such a great career. I said, well, you could too. You're only, how old are you? She said, 24. I said, well, you could go into the Army. She said, oh, she said, I could never give up my personal freedom. And, and you know, it's, it's the way... Young people, it's their expectations today, and um, this makes it hard for them. I was at Amherst a few years ago teaching a class um, on the volunteer force with um, a, an old friend from the military academy named Skip Bosovich, who's a professor up in Boston. And so um, Amherst is a very selective college. It's probably the most selective college in America, and these young people were very worried about the draft uh, and about the fact there wasn't one. And the fact that the all-volunteer force, it wasn't representative of America. There were too many, like, like poor people in it and, and, and not enough people of, of, you know, like... A variety. Of their, of their class. And so, so I went up there and I talked to them. I said, okay, you've got like 20 people in this class. It was on a Friday and Saturday. I said, I want you to go home tonight. I want you to call your parents. I want you to tell them that General Clark's here. And he promises that he, you can enlist for two years. He will guarantee an experience in a combat zone, probably Afghanistan, and you will be back in 24 months at Amherst. You will have done your duty to your country. You'll be incredibly enriched by the experience, and you will enrich the others because of your, your unique experiences at Amherst. It'll, it'll change your life, all for the better. And uh, I want you to come in tomorrow morning and tell us uh, about it and how many of you want to come in, and we'll have the recruiter here to sign you up. So, as you might imagine, not a one. So the excuses were, well, my mother said, I, 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 I'm not really, I don't, I'm not into guns, and I would be better as a diplomat. 
And, you know, there's like, well, uh, you know, my mother, my father said, uh, this is not for us, and uh, he needs me in my business, and his business. And, you know, there were, there were dozens of excuses. But the point is, it was really easy to pontificate about it and worry about it. It wasn't easy for them to make an abrupt change in their life. And if it's that hard when you're 20 or 21, imagine as you go forward. So uh, something as important to bringing the nation together as, as national service, something as vital in delivering services to the country that you can't afford to pay for under a government that's resource, increasingly resource-constrained, why wouldn't we ask our young people to do this? That's a very well said, and that's a good point. I haven't thought about it. Resources constraint, why don't we use our young people? And it would be so good for them. Because I feel like my job is all the time teaching young people how to work. It could be a great experience for them. And then there's another group I like, too. Okay. You know, many of the problems abroad are problems to do with um, good governance. And good governance requires the rule of law, and it requires financial management. Those are the two kind of essentials. You have to set up the, the rules. You have to have a system to interpret the rules. And then you have to follow them and spend money on the public good. And so... Um, I've been in, I don't know how many countries, talk to the heads of government and so forth. They all complain. And yet, when we try to provide assistance, it's very hard. It's very easy to get military assistance in. Just send the special forces over. We can train you guys and uh, how to march, give you some basic marksmanship training, give you uniforms, get a basic radio, and pretty soon you got a unit. And we did this in Africa, and we tried to help these countries for peacekeeping purposes. Uh, but what they really need is they need people who can be in their various ministries working and helping and supporting good governance. And now we're talking about lawyers and accountants. We're talking about people in their 40s, in their mid-career, people who want to take a break for a year or two, people who will serve in a more mature Peace Corps, people who are willing to learn a language. Uh, work in, an, in a different environment. And so you want them to go to Australia. these countries? You want I'd them love it if they would. And yeah. what do you want them to do exactly? I want them to assist and provide consulting services under the aegis of the United States government to help governments have what we have. They so, all say they want to have what we have in America. Well, you can't have it if you don't have good governance. You've got to have respect for the laws. And um, you've got to have a way of managing the books. So you don't want them to go over there in a private sector uh, uh, style. You want them to go over there and work with the government, mentoring the government and teaching them the skills of management that That's we right. have. That's right. I want them invited by the host government. There's, they're besieged by people who are looking for contracts. And everybody wants more money. Well, I was making $100,000 a year at home. But if I'm going to live in Nigeria, I should be paid $300,000 a year. So pretty soon they ramp up the, the – it, it's unaffordable, and it sets them apart from the people they're working with. Imagine getting extra pay like that and being in with a bunch of civil servants who are being paid 30000 a year. Would you be resented? Yes. Uh, I would think so. So, you know, this is part of the problem is we don't have always the right tools. We talk about how we're trying to help other countries live better, but we show them how we live. They see it 24 hours a day in soap operas, on, on, on the uh, TV. They see it on the 24-hour news cycle. They see it on any number through social media, through advertisements, through products. 
but they don't really understand how to do it in their country. When I talk to people in the Middle East and Africa, they're always going to Europe. And I say, well, why, why, why? what's the matter? I mean, this is not home. I said, yes, but it's so much easier in Europe. Why so, is it easier in Europe? Everything works. I mean, if you want a driver's license, you go and apply for a driver's license. If there's an issue with um, the medical, you go to the hospital. So in their oh. countries, you know, you, the hospital's not there. The doctor doesn't have what he needs. The, there's a three-day wait for a driver's license. You have to pay somebody. I mean, there are millions of issues that Americans take for granted because we do have good governance that people abroad look at and say, it's just so hard to get anything done. I want to start a business. If you want to start a business in Arkansas, it's easy. You go down and fill out some forms with the state secretary of state, and you are you have an LLC, and you pay, I don't know, $100 or something, you're in business. That's it's, right. It's no big deal. If you want to start a business in some countries, it's 15 different stamps on forms and paying people and waiting in lines. Anywhere you see a line for anything, you can assume that line is a sign of corruption. Oh, what interesting. It's put in place because if you don't want to stand in the back of the line, there's a way to get in the front of the line really easy. You pay. You can call it bakshish. You can call it la mordida. You can call it whatever you want. But good governance is rare. That's why people want to come here. That's what they believe in in the United States. They believe in a, a rule of law. But and, our barriers of entry are too hard. Well... The thing about it is the American business community is a very tough business community. You were talking about how long it took you to get your business started, and that was then. One of the things that has – I've been 17 years now in the private sector, and one of the things you see is how difficult it is for young businesses to get started in the United States. The rate of, of small business formation today is half of what it was in the 1970s, and uh, people want to blame that on a lot of different things. I've I was talking the other day to uh, one of the chief editors of Inc. magazine, and I asked him the question. He said it's because, not because of regulations. It's really because of capital. It's hard to get the money. In the old days, and when I was growing up here in Little Rock, I worked for Mr. Mady. He had a little office down by the state capitol, and I was one of his chart boys. So when I was a junior in high school, you could come in and make a dollar an hour by reading Barron's Financial Weekly, and you could chart the high low and the close for each stock on uh, graph paper with a number three pencil. If you did it well for two hours, you got $2. (laughs) I thought, man, this is pretty darn good. I mean, my mother makes like $40 a week. If I could work 40 hours here, but of course, I realized soon I couldn't do that for 40 hours. (laughs) I just couldn't do it. It wasn't in me. But but one of the things Mr. Mady did was he... um, he and others, there were local investments. People invested in their local communities. Everything wasn't nationalized. Everything wasn't competing across the country. One of the things that's happened is big companies have gotten much, much bigger. And the people in these companies are, they're just like you and me. They're just, you know, they love their families. They're doing the best they can. They want to please the boss. They want to get promoted. They want their kids to do well in school. But the organizational output of these big companies is um, its very selfish. That is to say, they want what's good for them, not what's good for the larger community. So you have to have a referee. And one of the things that's happened in the United States is the refereeing hasn't gone as well over the last 30 or 40 years as I would like to see it go. I would like to see the standards for mergers and acquisitions be tightened up so that uh, we get 
uh, we slow down the movement toward oligopolies and monopolies. So we make more space in the business community for smaller startup firms. And people will argue, well, you know, for purposes of efficiency. Yeah, no, but it's not about efficiency. It's really about what's good for the society as a whole. Because it turns out that when you have monopolies, you block innovation. You block young people getting started. And so really, for the society as a whole, it's not more efficient. It's less efficient. It just locks in certain businesses and practices. And um, those are that's one of the things that, that I Can it ever be stopped? I mean, Teddy Roosevelt put in antitrust laws, but it doesn't seem to be... Oh, it worked really well for a while, but it takes political will to do this. And, um, and, and so when you have, the more money you have in politics, then the more difficult it is to do this. And the more money you get is from the lobbyists who have their own special interests, I guess. Well, so the lobbyists be- are hired by the money to yeah. promote the special interests. It's like a guy told me yeah. once. He said, you don't make much money working for government, but he said, you can make a lot of money off government. Ooh. And I thought, oh, I hadn't ever, I mean... You know, I was in the Army. I was running around. I was a commander-in-chief of the U.S. Southern Command in, in Latin America. I went to all 33 countries of Latin America. I went to the Caribbean. And I always advocated, should do our system. And in Argentina, Carlos Menem became a hero in Latin America for pegging the Argentine peso to the dollar. And our system looked really good. And then when I was in Belgium, a woman um, who was a Holocaust survivor and a Belgian businesswoman and she was very, very, she was in her 80s, and she was very experienced and very smart. She told me once, she said, in America, she said, you have the best government that money can buy. Mm. I said, oh, oh. It was one of those aha moments that, mm-hmm. that you never really think about when you're growing up. I mean, in ninth grade civics, they don't really explain it to you. And so I begin to look at the role of money. It is important that people who have money have the right to use their money and express themselves. But on the other hand, we believe in one person, one vote. And we believe that the community's interest is special and important. That's what it said says in the United States Constitution, to form a more perfect union for the common good. It doesn't say to advance a couple of families to make billions of dollars. Fifty to be exact, I think. Well, to how many it is, it doesn't (laughs) matter. The point is that somehow in this last 30 or 40 years, we've grown the economy tremendously, but the distribution of wealth and income has become increasingly unequal. And that inequality causes problems. And um, we don't know how to change it. The only way to change it is to grow the economy. But you can't grow the economy unless you're willing to do some things. You have to uh, be stronger in antitrust enforcement. Another one is what you call regulatory capture. In other words, when we set up this, when Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, tried to establish a more fair and, and responsible business community that could work for the good of the country as a whole instead of for just the giant trusts or the single families like the Rockefellers and so forth. And this is all from over 100 years ago. They began to establish these regulatory agencies, and um, they went on through the 1930s, really, and the Depression when Roosevelt finished out the progressive movement. But if these regulatory agencies are staffed by people who must depend on the businesses and industries that they are regulating 
for their retirement and for their income security, then they can't be as loyal to the public good as we would like. I don't want to impugn the reputations and the good sense of all these servants, civil servants, because we have an excellent civil service program and some great people working in governments. But I think we have to remain very sensitive to the fact that if government pay lags behind private sector pay, if people feel like, well, I really like working for the government, but, um, you know, i got to put the kids in college, and therefore, let's see, uh, well, I really know the oil industry, and therefore, hmm, ah, oh, there's a the guy from Exxon. Well, I know if I retire, hmm, if I get out of here, well, I told my wife I would be getting out in my late 30s, and uh, she's saying, when are you getting out? Uh, Joe, can, can, can we have coffee sometime? Oh, I see what you're and saying. And before you know it, um, he's working as the... Exxon or Shell or some other big industrial groups expert on government relations. And they're using his experience and his role at X. And then the guys who are left behind say, you know what? <laughs> God, he's working out there for like four times what he made here. I could do that. How do I do that? That's my safety net. You see, in the military, we never thought about that. We never considered what we would do, when I, at least I never did when I got out. It was just so all-encompassing to be on the inside. But this regulatory capture, it's important in the banking industry, it's important in the environmental protection industry, uh, agency, it's important um, all across the board in Food and Drug Administration, everywhere. If you don't have public servants who are smart enough, experienced enough, and motivated enough to keep up with the agencies or with the uh, industries and the companies they're regulating, you won't have good, sensible regulation. You'll get lost in it. And um, ultimately, the public suffers. So that's the second thing we have to work about. What if they on. just made a rule where you couldn't go work for the company you're regulating? Well, they often do have rules like that, but they usually apply only at the top, and they only apply for a year or two. And so, and, and they can be waived. And um, the way it used to work out is, first of all, the discrepancies in salaries wasn't so great. And secondly, people were really happy for a steady job. And, um, and third, businesses in those days, um, they weren't so adept at calculating profit and loss down to the third decimal point. They didn't have Excel spreadsheets. They didn't have real-time accounting. You know, uh, a modern store can tell you in, with, with, within 10 seconds of what's been sold, what's left in inventory, what's been ordered today, how many people it needs. Oh, really? Well, uh, what's, your, what's your income per square meter of floor space and income per employee? Well, how could this, how could this company make $5,000? Oh, wait a minute. Kerry, uh, aren't you in the retail business? Yeah. So you know exactly yeah, what I'm talking I'm about. Yeah, I'm laughing right? at you. So yeah. you have to use metrics, okay? But the thing about it is we've got to always think in terms of what's good for the country as the real driving overarching, good for the community, not just what is good for the individual business. If you say what's good for the business is good for the country, yes and no. So take the large view. You know, in the field of economics, I used to teach economics, um, we talked about stakeholders in businesses. We said businesses have the owners, they have the workers, they have the managers, they have, they have the local community. All this, these are stakeholders. But in the 19, late 70s, early 80s, there was a revolution in business management in America. It said it's now not about stakeholder theory of value. It's shareholder theory of value. Everything is about how well 
you do for the shareholder. And not the people that you that work for you. Well, I mean. Took the focus off the people got, that work for you. Exactly. And we really got into this very narrowly. And, of course, it does bring results. If you really, it's like anything in life. If you really work for something, you can probably get it. So if your principal concern is to elevate the value of the share on the New York Stock Exchange, you probably can do that at the sacrifice of other values. And it's, it's like when I was um, in one of my first business experiences, I was on a comp committee, and um, we had done a, um, a limited buyout of two moving van companies. We put the two companies together, and it turned out that they had what's called defined benefit pension programs. So these people who were doing manual labor and lifting and driving and stuff, they knew that after 20, 20 years of working for that company, they could retire at 40% or 50% of what their annual salary was. And um, so before the board meeting that day, the, the woman who was the human resources manager, the HR director, briefed the compensation committee that I was on and said, well, we're going to change this from defined benefit to defined contribution. I said, well, doesn't that mean like you'll put in a certain amount, they'll put in a certain amount, it goes into the stock market, and then when they retire, they can't really know for sure how much they're going to make, right? She says, that's right. I said, but, but what if the stock market's down? She said, that's their risk. I said, well, but I said, in the military, if you did that to us in the military, we call that an erosion of benefits because when we signed up, you, you promised us this, you know, it's like our health care and everything. And we'd go to Congress. She said, General, if they don't like what we're doing, they can quit. There's 10 people out there who want a job here for everyone working here. I hate that. And you may hate it, but she wasn't wrong. No, because there you were have... people who would have worked there. That's right. And um, business does do that. And that's that was part of the wave of LBOs. You took these pension funds that were in a pot and you changed the way it was done, you might grandfather some people in there so there couldn't be lawsuits. But basically, you got a sort of pot of money that went along with, with doing the LBO, I guess. So um, when you look at these changes, you realize that um, that the shareholder theory of value, it's, it's a very narrow way to approach a company because it doesn't incentivize the employees. It doesn't really incentivize the community. And it doesn't leave the best for the community. There's a there's a place in Iowa that when I was up there campaigning one time. I met this. I was at this community. They said, Yeah, yeah, we gave these guys a big tax break. The firm moved in. Uh, two years later, they moved out to Mexico, and they left us stranded. We paid for all this from the community. All these people had jobs. Now they've all lost their jobs, and they moved because some CFO that came in said, Oh, I know how to set up something in Mexico, and I bet we can save money. <laughs> and so. Um, yeah, you say that's legitimate. That's the way business is supposed is. to work. However, however, it's not moral. it doesn't have to be that way. For example, I was on the board of a company in Germany, and the Germans had a workers' council, and the Germans had laws. So, yeah, you can fire people over there, no problem, and uh, you can close a business and move it. However, you're going to pay, like, three years' wages and ten years' taxes. So you have to evaluate the move if it's really that valuable, you'll do it. If it's marginal, you won't. And um, so the German economy actually has been pretty dynamic. It's not as bad as people think, and it's still leading the world in a lot of heavy manufacturing. So uh, there are different models and different ways to make these things work. I just feel like our Congress and 
is is paralyzed and sitting or paralyzed to get anything done though. And those sounds like big changes. Well, I think there's You're a lot thinking of, big. I think there's a lot of great smart people in Congress in both parties, and they're trying really hard. But Congress has changed because it's 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 it operates on a competitive basis. It goes back to the founding fathers, really, in the Federalist Papers, which explained the U.S. Constitution, in the 51st paper written by Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. They said, you know, the problem that happens to democracies is one small group takes control of the democracy, and then it's not a democracy anymore. It becomes like a monarchy. And this is what happened in Athens. This is what happened in Rome. Every time in history they tried to set up a democracy, some group would take it over, and then it would destroy the democracy. So they said the solution is what became known as checks and balances. That is to say, let ambition counteract ambition, and let interest counteract interest. And so, in a way, what happens in our government is adversarial system. It's labor's interest against management. It's the South against the North. It's the East against the heartlands. And, I mean, these are their various sectional interests, business interests, political interests that all are put up there, and people are shuffling papers and trying to reach compromises. doesn't sound like a great system, but nobody's come up with anything better so far. And where we are right now is that... Rome? Are we're we wrong? <laughs> the thing that's happened in the country is we got better economically during the 1960s and 70s, and we moved from being worried about jobs, really, even though people say they are, they moved into values. And the trouble with values as opposed to jobs is it's really hard to compromise values. So if, if one group is pro-life and the other group is pro-choice, then what's the compromise? There, there's really no compromise. You talk about, well, rolling back and this legislation and that legislation and so forth. And um, the guns issues become a huge value uh, issue in this country. It's not about guns. I mean, really, lot, I've got plenty of guns at home. It's really values and what you believe in in your heart. And when, you, when politics becomes reduced to values, then it's much harder to move forward in a democracy. And uh, so the struggles become much more intense, much more gut-wrenching. And the country's pretty much evenly divided in terms of public opinion on many of these value issues right now. It's been this way for 30, 40 years. I saw it when I first came back from Vietnam, and um, people had long hair. And I thought, what the heck? I mean, I had a crew cut, and all these guys, you know, they're all, and they had long hair. What are they doing? And uh, we went through the sexual revolution, the civil rights revolution. Uh, we went through uh, a big uh, inflationary push and then uh, a really tough economic period of rising oil prices in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. We came out of it with the Reagan revolution, and mm -hmm. Reagan convinced Americans that government needed to shrink and um, that it was mostly about values. And... Uh, if it becomes that, then government looks like it's deadlocked. It's really a pretty good process. If you can move off the values issue, you get a lot done. Well, you're a historian. I saw you go head-to-head -head with uh, Bill O'Reilly. Well, so yes, tell us, but that doesn't if history, make either one of us historians. You are, though. If Both of you are. If you were, do you believe history repeats itself? No, but I do believe, you know, they always joke, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Things... <laughs> Things happen 
you can feel the forces working in a certain way. So what's rhyming? It, it moves a certain in certain ways. Like, you know, when things get bad enough in terms of inequality in this country, people will respond to it. It may not be the next election cycle. It may be two, four, six election cycles from now. Or if the economy breaks. When the economy broke in 2008, we got the Tea Party. People were really mad when their retirements were threatened and when their home values went down. So... With all your globetrotting, and since we're on the subject, what do you think the biggest threat to civilization is? War, global warming, greed, global economy, energy shortages, water shortages, propaganda? I mean, that's why. I mean, these are all, let's don't talk about threats. I, I always look at it this way. There's, there's two parties, two political parties in America. There's a party that is about fear, and it gets its energy from worry, anxiety, fear, threats. And there's a party that gets its energy from fairness and opportunity and challenges. And uh, it's, it's probably easier to get the power from fear if you can frighten people. But um, actually, we're in a darn good place right now in the United States and in the world. We've raised billions of people above the poverty level. We have unparalleled communications. For the first time, people can see that, if they look, that most people are mostly just like them. Skin color, hair color, religious faith, really, there's not that much difference. There's a few nuts out there who want to take us back to the seventh century, um, but they're not going to succeed in that. And so, and you've got people who, for their own political purposes, like Vladimir Putin, have tried to say something about nationalism and being white and being Christian and so forth. But it's actually not as strong as what pulls us together. Because when you put people together and they see each other and they talk to each other and, and, they, and they feel the same empathies and concerns, that's the really wonderful thing about where we are in the 21st century. Right now, we can do that. So I don't think there's going to be a great war. I don't think there's going to be an asteroid hit the United States or anywhere in the world. I don't think the Yellowstone supervolcano is going to erupt anytime soon and destroy most of the United States. You don't think California's going to fall off the... I don't think it's going to fall <laughs> off into the Pacific. Um, and and um, I don't think that the terrorists are going to succeed. Um, I think climate change is a problem, but we have... Most of the technologies that we need to deal with it and the ones that we don't have, we can get. And so we have a challenge facing us. And the challenge is, can mankind look to the future with confidence and hope rather than looking at their neighbors in fear? And if you can look to the future with confidence and hope, then you look at the environment that's around us and you say, okay, well now, you know, we can't sustain this. You can't continue to pump this much carbon in the atmosphere without some bad things happening. We don't know the pace of it, the mathematics of how glaciers melt, how the sea warms, uh, how fast the ocean's going to rise, all, the, all that stuff. It's not solid. It's all just estimates. But you do know that the climate's changing, not, not the weather, the climate, and that most of the change seems to be caused by, by economic development. It's by our use of energy, our expelling carbon, digging it up out of the ground, burning it, and then throwing it into the atmosphere. Probably going to get worse. So 
can we really bring the leadership together in this country and around the world that we need to deal with this issue? And that's the challenge for mankind. In other words, can we go can the institutions that got us here were wonderful institutions. I mean, think if we hadn't discovered oil in the 19th century, where we'd be. What I mean, the whole 20th century is about oil. We'd be using solar. Well, no. You wouldn't have air travel because you've got to have jet oh, yeah. fuel. You wouldn't have the, the ships, the, the automobile traffic. We didn't have it. We couldn't do it. And um, it gave us mobile liquid energy. But now there's new technologies. Um, and technology generally, if you look for it, you'll find it. Just like we found a way to go to the moon. President Kennedy told us we're going to get to the moon before the end of the decade of the 60s. We did, because not because we knew how, but because we knew how to learn how to do it. And we could do the same thing with our technology with climate change. But to do it, we have to reform our institutions. So people that work in coal-fired power plants, um, we're going to have to work to do other things with those coal-fired power plants, and those people have to do other things to be productive citizens. Be retrained. Well, they can be retrained. They can be reemployed in other ways. Um, and um, there's, you know, nothing's going to happen overnight, but we need a plan to get there. we got to look between before. We have to look beyond the quarterly earnings statements of major corporations, even beyond flag and banner, <laughs> and, and really look at where the country's going. We have to put out a program. One of the things that was really great that was done during the Bush administration was something called the Renewable Fuel Standard. And Congress passed a law that said that um, every year the Environmental Protection Agency would, would raise the volume of renewable fuel that would be put in the nation's fuel supply. Right. Every year, and it, it through 15 years into the future, and um, every year they do that. Every year there's a fight about it. And, you know, the oil industry is on one side, the ethanol industry is on the other. But the point is the law was out there. It set some targets and some benchmarks. And we could do that all across the society. We don't have to centrally plan it. We're not communists. We're not socialists. We're free market people in this country. But give us some targets and let the market decide what people want let the best entrepreneurs and the best innovators get us there. And so what, what I see in the future is this great challenge of climate change that could be the transformative uh, engine for world society. Wow. Everybody I know that is a leader like you, that makes a difference in the world, is positive like that. They have really positive things to say like that. So is that why you started Wesley K. Clark & Associates? Uh, your international consulting firm because of everything you said for the last 45 minutes. Do you go around? I saw where you go into five continents. There's only seven. I'm sure you're not going into Antarctica. What's the other continent you don't go into? I haven't been, I haven't been much in South America. I think, but um, uh -huh. I've done a little bit in, in South America. But, but So is that why you started your firm, so that you can take all this wisdom that you've given us today because you have this positive energy and you go around and you share your good news and you try to talk about technology and the future and is that why you're so motivated and energetic all the time? I just had this wonderful gift given to me that I had never expected in my whole life. I got out of the military. I didn't know what I was going to do, and I came to Little Rock. I worked at Warren Stevens uh, on the 25th floor of the Stevens Building in Warren. 
and, and Harriet gave us a great welcome back into Little Rock, and Jack Stevens was still alive then, and I was incredibly grateful for it. I didn't really understand much about business, um, and I didn't understand much about America, though I thought I did. I'd been gone 39 years from Little Rock when I came back in 2001, and I had this incredible gift given to me of letting me run for office. I got to go to, in five months in that campaign, I got to 30 states. I met the top people. I met the top people in business. I met the top academicians. I got to learn education and health care issues and economic issues from a perspective that very few people get to see it from. So it was a tremendous education, and it really aroused my intellectual curiosity. Yeah. You, uh, I told everybody at the beginning of the show that we'd tell a war story. You've only got nine minutes, and I have swim with you. You are. I want everybody to know you're a really down-to-earth guy, even though you sound, you are extremely intelligent, and you've done a lot. But you and I swim at just an average gym, and you just swim with normal people. You're very um, down-to-earth. How do you stay so grounded? Well, I mean, there's just... Life's exciting. Okay. The other thing I want to <laughs> There's say. There's a lot going on, and uh, and uh, you try to keep up with it. And when I was getting out of the military, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I there was a congresswoman, Ellen Tauscher, and she said, oh, she said, I'll tell you. Here's what you should do. You should do one-third of your time should be um, investment banking. One-third of your time should be speaking and lecturing and uh, studying. And one-third of your time should be not-for-profit work. And I thought, hmm, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, after you've been, when you've been in the military for a long time, you don't really know what you're going to do when you get out. What civilian life is going to be like? I mean, you think, well, I'll just get a job and, you know, I'll go work for Lockheed Martin or some big defense company. <laughs> right. I'll show up at 7.30 in the morning, have a cup of coffee at the coffee pot. I'll work hard at my desk all day. I'll, uh, you know, make my reports on time and I'll help the boss. And no, no, it doesn't. I mean, it may work that way when you're in your 20s or 30s, but, you know, after you've done. Uh, you know what I've done. They can't. You can't go backwards. So you have to create your own life, and um, you have to. It's what I tell all of my friends who are retiring. You got to create your life. I mean, you're you've done all this. People have given you all that. They gave you the structure. They gave you the education. They gave you the experiences. Now you go create it, and then give it back to other people. You are definitely doing that. So tell us a war story. You want to tell us about the the scar on your back? that I've seen the swimming pool? Because I first thing I said when I went up to, I don't remember this, but a couple of years ago, I came and said, please tell me you didn't get that in a car wreck or I will be really disappointed. And you said, no, I actually got shot. Is that something you could share with us, what happened, or if what yeah, you remember? I mean, it's, it's no or is great that? story. I was, it was the time of the Vietnam War when we were um, trying to keep the enemy from operating in large units and trying to keep them away from Vietnam, we had gone away from body counts, and um, we weren't doing big operations. We were doing a lot of small patrols. I was out on a small patrol. Um, um, We knew the enemy was in the area. Uh, We found the enemy. We walked into his base camp. We didn't see it when the shooting started. I was the first guy shot. and (laughs) We had a little firefight. It lasted about 30 minutes. I I was on the ground. I had got hit four times, and uh, so I had got hit in the hand, shoulder, shoulder. the calf and the buttocks and uh, I could think the buttocks when I was crawling away and um, it was like the gunfight at the OK Corral for about 10 or 15 minutes a bunch of ordinary drafted Americans, half of them not high school graduates, none of them would have passed a Hall High School calculus class and um, and I called on them to come up and start firing and take up position and they charged into the fire and laid down and 
won the won the day and basically saved my life. And helicopter came and flew me away. You don't think that's a great story? That's a great story about mankind. I also read that you uh, commanded at the battalion, brigade, and division levels. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Is that in Vietnam also? No, no. But but you you know you go through a career and it's progressive. And so if you do well as company commander, I had three different companies to command. And um, if you do well in, in relation to your peer group, then they give you the next higher command eventually, and that was a battalion that has five companies in it. If you do well as a battalion commander, then you could get a brigade, which has three to five battalions in it. If you do well as a brigade commander, they could give you a division, which has five to seven brigades in it. And so um, this is a progressive move up, and everything is demonstrated performance. It's, it's the way any good organization operates. And your last command was as the NATO commander and supreme allied commander in Europe, where you led NATO forces to victory in Operation Allied Force, saving 1.5 million Albanians from ethnic cleansing. You've got some great karma. Tell us about that. So what happened was we negotiated the peace treaty, a peace agreement that stopped the fighting in Bosnia. But... Milosevic was also cracking down on his ethnic Albanian population a couple of hundred miles away in, in Kosovo. And um, these Albanians, they didn't want to be cracked down on. He told them they couldn't educate kids in their own language. If you were Albanian, you couldn't be a doctor. You couldn't be a member of the government. You couldn't issue driver's licenses. He just ran them out, basically. And it was like a takeover of the government by a minority. And um, they stood up and fought. And um, he responded with military action against the civilian population. I flew down and tried to, on a couple, three occasions, we went down and negotiate with him and tried to explain to him. I stood with his generals, sat around a map, explained to the Serb generals, you can't do this. I mean, basically, you, you put military force against people. I'm, I'm from Arkansas. You know, I grew up with guns. Mm-hmm. I know what people don't like to be pushed around. Mm-hmm. People have self-respect. You put a bunch of yahoos down there in, in uniform pushing around these people, they're going to fight back. I said, you've got to get them on your side. So, you know, the Serbs didn't believe it. They believed they could intimidate the population, take out the educators, the doctors, the lawyers, the human rights workers, anybody who had resistance, they take them out, shoot them, or dump the body down mine shafts or whatever. And uh, so they did this for a couple of years, and population rose up in revolt. And... Um, so uh, NATO had said to Milosevic he couldn't do it, and if he tried to do it, we would take military action against him. We did this in an effort to stop him from doing it, but when he started, we took the military action. So we did a bombing campaign um, against him of escalated attacks, and we also prepared a ground force or planned to do a ground force invasion if he didn't stop. But um, after 78 days of steadily escalating strikes against his um, resource base and his capital and his communications and so forth, Milosevic realized he was on the losing side. And Milosevic, the Serb dictator, he was a very rational guy. Spoke English. I knew him. So I was, I'm probably the only 20th century commander who really knew his principal adversary. And uh, we knew how to, how to break his spirit and take his will away. And we did. And when we sent a Tomahawk missile into his house which was used as a command center and had a bunch of antennas on it, people cheered. Oh. 
And uh, I'm cheering. Yeah, and so uh, we didn't kill him, and I was happy for Good. that. But uh, but we did uh, really symbolically take down the regime, and um, the after 78 days, we negotiated an agreement that they pulled all their forces back. And a maid and a half Albanians came out of the forest and came back from neighboring countries to their homes. And today, Kosovo is an independent country. I love it. It, well, it didn't have to work out that way. Generally, we don't like to create new countries. But when your ego's too big. But, but you couldn't do anything. These people were, they were so hard-headed that they just couldn't live together after so many relatives had been killed. And so, you know, the thing I learned is that don't use the military unless you have absolutely no other way. Because military is about breaking things and killing people. And when you kill people, their relatives, they don't forget and forgive. They'll hold grudges for a long time. You know, people in Arkansas, I would. we know that. Yeah. We went through the Civil War down here. And when I was a little boy growing up, there were still Confederate soldiers alive. And people were kind of quiet about it. But... Grudges last a long time, and uh, and don't do that as a nation if you can avoid it. That's the most fundamental lesson I learned. It's just been an honor to have you on today. Thank you for sharing all your experience and your wisdom. If you have a great entrepreneurial story you would like to share, I'd love to hear from you. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me and my guest. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening, and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. Friends of Dreamland are proud to sponsor Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Dreamland Ballroom, located on the third floor of the FlagAndBanner.com building in the historic Taborian Hall, is a nonprofit dedicated to bringing back the music, the history, and the party of the Dreamland Ballroom. Our annual fundraiser, Dancing Into Dreamland, will be a tournament of past champions to celebrate the 10th year. Friday, November 15th, the night will include a dance competition where audience members text their votes for their favorite acts, a silent auction, free hors d'oeuvres, cash bar, and your opportunity to experience the magic and imagine the music of the legends that played on the Dreamland stage, like Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, and many more. Tickets available at dreamlandballroom.org for the 10th annual Dancing into Dreamland. Be a part of the history of Dreamland. You've been listening to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select Radio Show, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.